Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. And on the show, I interview some of the interesting students, professors, and staff at Santa Clara University to learn about their lives. The Voices of Santa Clara podcast this past week won an award. It was from the English department, and it was called the Multimodal Writing Prize. Uh, So that was exciting and fun to be recognized. I often get the question of how to listen to a podcast like Voices of Santa Clara, so I'm glad that you, dear listener, somehow figured it out. If you're listening on your computer and you would rather be walking around, going on a run at the grocery store, you can use the iTunes podcast app or there's some other better designed apps like Stitcher and Overcast. Today's guest is Professor Sanjiv Das, who is a finance professor at the Levy School of Business at Santa Clara. He has a perfect five-star rating on RateMyProfessors.com, and if you've read any reviews on RateMyProfessors, you know just how impressive of a feat that is. Professor Das has lived in many different locations throughout the world, such as Hong Kong, Singapore, Brunei, Kuala Lumpur, Sydney, Tokyo, New York, Boston, and now in San Jose. And interestingly, all nine of those cities have been near the ocean. When he's not researching machine learning, derivative pricing models, or portfolio theory, you might find him riding his racing motorcycle along the California coastline. I think that's about all you need to know, so please enjoy this conversation with Professor Sanjeev Das. I would love to start out in perhaps the most logical place for a professor of finance, and that's with Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I saw that you had a short creative story um, about, about Winnie the Pooh called The Tao of Pooh, and it was kind of about the stock market and the animals slowly discover what, uh, what the Tao and what the stock market is. I'm curious mm-hmm. what inspired that piece of writing. So I, I did read the two books. One is called the Tao of Pooh, where it's D-A-O of Pooh. It's sort of a little pop uh, philosophy kind of book, but mm-hmm. it's really nice. And and it's followed up by a sequel called The Tay of Piglet. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of this Chinese philosophy through the eyes of mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh. And I read that when I was living in Hong Kong, actually, many, many years ago. So thinking about those books, I said, oh, I should just write the Dao of Pooh, where Dao is spelled D-O-W. Mm-hmm. Because my son was just, you know, getting to be about a couple of two, three years old. And mm-hmm. and, uh, and I thought, okay, that might be something fun for him to have, mm-hmm. <laughs> to read mm-hmm. later on. You know, whether he actually read it, I, I'm, I, I cannot remember. Mm-hmm. But I wrote it up, and at that time, I used to sort of be in the habit of just blogging a little bit here and there, but very mm-hmm. infrequently. Mm-hmm. And so I thought this would be a cool thing to write up. And then it stayed on my website. The first website I ever built was when mm-hmm. I became a faculty member at, at Harvard Business School. And mm-hmm. and I had a small section of it for, for fun things that had nothing to do with my work uh, or tangentially related to my work. And so I mm-hmm. decided to kind of put that up there. And it's remained there for a long, long time. And I think I've dragged it along with my website everywhere mm-hmm. I go. So, mm-hmm. so, so yeah. that's how, how it came about. Uh, okay. I don't think there was any great uh, thinking in it. I think I wrote the whole thing off at one sitting and that mm-hmm. was it. You know. 
Yeah. And so I was also, I was reading your, <laughs> your bio on that website and it said you worked in Asia right. for, for several years. What yeah, was yeah. it about banking that, that really inspired you, that you loved, that you enjoyed most? Uh, well, I think it was problem solving. It's, it's, uh, I was very lucky to be in many units where there were problems and I was sort of, you know, learning to think out of the box and solve problems, whether there were people problems or uh, financial problems or even sort of, you know, system problems, uh, math mm -hmm. problems, things of that sort. So, so there was always a sequence of these things. And I think maybe I got good at it, which is why I was being sent to do these things everywhere. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, doing research is very similar to that because you're trying to solve open problems that nobody solved before, mm -hmm. except it's a little harder because now the problem doesn't come uh, on a plate. You mm -hmm. literally have to figure out what's an interesting new problem to research. Mm -hmm. And so in the old days, the problem arrived and I had to use sort of different skills to solve it. Mm -hmm. Now I have to search out good problems that might make an impact on the real world. Mm -hmm. And so that, that takes experience and some judgment. And I think a lot of the experience from my work days does mm -hmm. help. What yeah. personal yeah. finance advice yeah. would you give college students? Yeah, so Dan Ostrov and I teach this math finance class, which is a pretty you know, advanced elective for math, finance, physics, engineering students. And uh, we sort of have these few things, common sense things that if you do it, you'll be fine. So if you're, so the most important thing is for a college student is don't wait to start saving. Okay, so the moment you turn 25, you'll be working. Uh, start saving as much as you can on the on right away. What most pe most young people do is they only start putting aside money when they're 35, so about 10 years later. And if you sort of look at look at you start putting in money at 25, and let's say you retire at 65, so you got a 40-year investment period, savings period. Uh, whereas if you did at 35, you have a 30-year period. Now it turns out that if you started at 25, you would end up with double the money at 65 than if you started at 35. Mm -hmm. So even though it's only 10 years off, that 10 years because of the power of compounding actually mm -hmm. means you'll get only half your money if you start 10 years later. And so that's the first thing, you know, I, I keep telling every, every young person I know, start saving as early as you can mm -hmm. because you will actually really benefit in spades, you know, at the end of it. So that's the first thing. The second, the second thing is, uh, don't pay too many fees to money managers for uh, uh, for your asset uh, allocations. In fact, you can just do it yourself. If you don't want to be an active trader, just put your money in index funds. Index funds charge you almost zero. Uh, not perfectly zero, but yes, very, very low mm -hmm. uh, fees for actually managing your money. And you grow with the market. If you went to an actively managed fund and you paid a fund manager, let's say a percent a year of your, mm -hmm. of your portfolio for managing it, over a 40 year period, if you put in money regularly, you would end up with one third less mm -hmm. if you paid 1% to your money manager, mm -hmm. literally one third less. And so let's say you started with 100,000 and you invested for 40 years at say 6%, mm -hmm. you'll end up with 1.1 million. If you invest the same 100,000 for, for the same 40 years, but at 5%, because every year 1% was being taken away by your, mm -hmm. your fund manager, you'd end up with only 700,000. So it's mm -hmm. 1.1 million versus 700,000. So that's taking off 30, 40% right away. Yeah. And so if you pay fees, you're also going to lose 
money, even though it's just a 1% they're taking, but it actually compounds and it becomes one third of your money being kept by your mm -hmm. fund manager. So you, why do you want to give that away? Mm -hmm. It's not necessary. That's the second piece of advice. Very simple things. You don't have to like do anything tortuously complicated to do, do these things. And the third thing is don't trade too often. What a lot of people do is they get a tech job, they sit there, they're day trading all the time. So when your portfolio grows, it's over here and you know at some level. And then if you sell and buy something else because you're trying to you know go in and out of different uh, assets, mm -hmm. every time you sell, you're going to have to pay taxes on the gains. Mm -hmm. So your portfolio actually drops by a notch, and then because you've paid no taxes to the government. And so it's again got to have to grow back to the original point before you start seeing the benefits, even mm -hmm. if your strategy was good to shift out. Uh, let's say it was neutral. That is, you bought something that sort of pretty much replaced what you had. Mm -hmm. You've just paid taxes mm -hmm. and, and lost a bit of money right there. Mm -hmm. So if you trade too much, you end up just paying taxes too early. And that costs you a lot in the long run as well. Mm -hmm. So these three things, if people generally, you know, yeah. <laughs> just pay attention to. Uh, but I think the first one is the most important one. You know, start mm -hmm. saving early, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and you'll be richer than you imagine without really having to kill yourself over it. You know, mm -hmm. so, yeah. You recently, yeah, yeah. you recently wrote a blog post about kind of managing all the different parts of being a professor. And yeah, you talked about yeah. research and teaching and editing yeah, and yeah. conferences right, and consulting right, and all right. these things. So I'm wondering, how do you? manage all those different areas how do you decide what is worth spending your time on yeah so it's it's actually i, I think i call it super tasking or something like that it's not even multitasking anymore and it's not just me i think every academic that's uh fully engaged in the academic profession uh it's a very multi varied set of things you have to do you know so all of us who are you know, seriously working as research uh, professors, we usually have five to 10 research projects going at one time. And so just keeping them all straight can be difficult. Then you have your teaching, of course, and you prepare for teaching and constantly updating material because, you know, especially like I teach machine learning, so stuff is changing at, at such a rapid pace that mm -hmm. I have to constantly update material. So that takes time. Then if you're senior enough, you're on editorial boards, so you're getting papers coming in, you have to get them reviewed, give comments, accept or reject papers. Then you're traveling to conferences. That's another thing. I just came back on Tuesday from another conference. Uh, then you have to uh, uh, be on committees in the school. So there's a whole bunch of these, these sorts of things. And then many of us uh, do a little bit of consulting to be connected to practice, especially business school academics. I think all, all of them should do it. It's just mm -hmm. very good for our students to have us be relevant and connected. So for example, I work with the Attorney General's Office on financial crime hmm. uh, stuff. Uh, you know, so I work with a uh, the robo-advising company that uses my research, uh, things of that sort, you know, so there's, there's many different things. I, I'm, I'm helping a startup do uh, uh, save people from payday lending hmm. traps. You know they're down here in San Jose, so 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 there's so many things you do, and and the the way I generally manage is I kind of get up really early in the morning and try. If on good days I'll get up at five or six in the morning and I'll just work at home for four hours straight on my research, or, you know things of that sort. So four hours after that you're burnt out. You really can't focus on something we're trying to solve a problem or prove a theorem. Mm -hmm. Then I'll come in here and <laughs> so start doing all the administrative stuff because I also run the data science program mm -hmm. here with a couple of my colleagues. So so I've got to work on all that. So 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 I do all that. 
then you usually have a bunch of meetings around uh, running the program or other things for the school and try and do that lunch so that that you know take care of lunch and that at the same mm-hmm. time and then after lunch i usually keep for students mm-hmm. and then i end up teaching at nights because grad school in, uh, in mm-hmm. uh, here is at night so tonight my office hours start at 4 they run till 7 i teach from 7:30 till 10:15 tonight mm-hmm. and so and today i was up at 5 you know right. i just had a ton of stuff to finish because there's some deadline next week hmm. so it's it's i sometimes look back at my days in industry and i feel that was like really easy hmm. <laughs> you know hmm. i used to get paid like twice as much for you know half the amount of uh, you know work hours i used to put in wow. but the 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 thing that keeps me going is that this is not work this is kind of i really enjoy uh, this job hmm. I enjoy doing research. I enjoy teaching and meeting my students, and so it doesn't feel like a pain, you know. Like mm-hmm. a lot of industry jobs, there's a lot of nonsense, you know, and and fighting battles that seem meaningless, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and politics, and you know, all that sort of thing. And we don't have that much here, especially this campus is great, you know. Mm-hmm. So 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 it it sort of makes up for it. But but academics generally, I think. anybody who's serious about what they're doing there many who, who kind of just you know after 10 years don't work that hard but mm-hmm. but uh, but then you you sort of fall out of the academic community you don't you know mm-hmm. that's your goal in life you might as well put put your heart and soul into it you know so mm-hmm. so almost you know ton of colleagues here are working that yeah. hard too so it's not just me wow. it's just the nature of the business and mm-hmm. and and most people don't realize that it's it's such a busy profession mm-hmm. they think oh you just teach you know four or five classes a year what's the big deal <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so people outside have a sense that all we do is teach mm-hmm. but that's not true you know because if we didn't do research which takes a ton of time and all the other stuff that goes into it uh, we'd be terrible teachers mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so yeah you mentioned yeah, yeah, yeah. you mentioned machine learning yeah, and i'm wondering yeah. how artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to change the way we work or learn or how yeah, that's going to look yeah, in the next 5 yeah. or 10 years the basic paradigm is working well and for it's working well for the simple reason that in the old days ai was you took something humans did and you tried mm-hmm. to replace it with a machine doing it uh, so those were rule based systems mm-hmm. the old chess playing programs also rule based systems we actually taught it rules and had it uh, look at the rules from many games and so on and so forth so it has fixed rules and it would follow those rules and it would search and say if i follow the rules and i go down all these different paths 20 deep which one gives me the best outcome mm-hmm. today's programs are very different today's ai is just give the data to the machine and let it learn everything mm-hmm. through pattern recognition mm-hmm. so if i give a bunch of text let's say i i upload google books large quantities of google books into a program and say learn all the sequences and words and then it's got a big pattern recognition thing and the moment it sees a sentence it figures out whether that fits an acceptable pattern or an acceptable pattern and then and then will reject it it's also able to generate text now which the old old things couldn't do because it has the ability to say if this string of words comes what's the most likely next five words hmm. because it's got this entire database of of books why these ones are better than humans is that the previous programs could not be better than the human that program the rules into it because they're bounded by the rules they had mm-hmm. now with just learning patterns from the data they will find rules that humans could not find and do much better mm-hmm. and so the current version of the chess machines actually works that way and it beats the previous version 
Plus, what it's doing better than humans is learning from experience faster. Our brains get wired because we live and we learn from experience. So every time I see a dog, if 10 times I've seen a dog through my life and neither have been, times I've been bitten, I'm not scared of dogs. Mm -hmm. Whereas another person who's been bitten three times out of 10 is going to have a very different reaction because their neurons get wired mm -hmm. um, differently. Now, machines can take all that data and learn for themselves as well. You know, so that's mm -hmm. how the self-driving cars know. They just receive inputs from 12 cameras mm -hmm. and they know whether the driver turned left or right, press the brake or not, press the accelerator or not. And so you map all the different millions of observations of these 12 cameras every second to what the three actions were. Basically, it learns how to map environmental inputs into actions and drives. Mm -hmm. It works beautifully. Now, how is it changing our lives? Any job where data is being generated is at risk. Or if anything takes one second, it's called the one second rule. Mm -hmm. So like toll booth operator, mm -hmm. you don't need anymore. You've got fast track, it's a one second thing. People just drive through, it's gone. Jobs are on two axes. One is whether the, the, the job is manual or cognitive. Mm -hmm. The other one is the routine or not routine. So manual and routine, like toll booth operators jobs, they're gone. If you have manual but not routine, so this is the kind of thing a police detective would do when they got a picture of a, a suspect mm -hmm. and then they go through the entire book to find if there's anybody in that book, you know, their, 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 their Facebook, they call it. Mm -hmm. They go through the whole thing to check. Now that's completely automated mm -hmm. because image recognition software has become so good that they don't need the policeman to spend his whole day flipping through the book. Mm -hmm. And two seconds later, they'll find the match. On the other axis, you have the uh, routine but cognitive tasks. So this is like lawyers and paralegals checking documents and mm -hmm. doing that sort of stuff. That's gone as well. Mm -hmm. And so if your job's generating data, then it's very easy for, for any machine learning practitioner to take that and train an AI to actually learn, mm -hmm. learn the job. You might think a trader is a sophisticated job, but it's not. Goldman Sachs had a dealing room in London with 600 equity traders. They've got two left. They replaced everybody with machines because those jobs generated data. Mm -hmm. You think a therapist is not replaceable? It's totally replaceable because all you do is take all the recorded therapy sessions mm -hmm. and an AI will learn the whole thing and mm -hmm. be able to do it. So it sounds like no one will have a job. So it's it's going to be tough. There's, I don't think no one will have a job. There's going to be a lot of jobs that are going to be AI enhanced. Mm -hmm. Say accounting forensics, you know, all these, the financial analysts read through all the accounting things, prepare these reports and so on and so forth. What will happen is basically they'll get a bunch of things done automatically by the machine way faster and then they will curate the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So it'll be higher quality and take less effort for, for them to do, you know, so it will be it, that's how it'll change. Doctors already are seeing that. Right. So, for example, when you take an X-ray in the old days, the X-rays would be read by the radiologist mm -hmm. and he'd write up a two page type up a two page mm -hmm. report that would take at least half an hour. Mm -hmm. Then they said, OK, it's very expensive to do this silly stuff in the US. So they would ship it to Philippines or India or somewhere, mm -hmm. literally send the film there. And there'd be teams of people there at very low cost would would train in radiology who would do it. Mm -hmm. But now image recognition is so good that you can basically take that and it'll come back and write the report as well. Mm -hmm. Then the radiologist looks at it. So what's going to happen is instead of the radiologist here having already lost their jobs, the radiologist here will get back their jobs hmm. and the machine will just generate the first draft of the report. The radiologist will check it against the thing and tweak the, the report writing. But all mm -hmm. of that might take only 10 minutes now. Mm -hmm. And so those jobs will go away from these faraway countries where it was being outsourced mm -hmm. because we're just replacing those guys now with the AI. Hmm. 
and giving back the the radiologist here their jobs. Hmm. So in some sense, there will be a shift in the labor mm-hmm. equation again, which is kind of interesting that mm-hmm. we, you know. So to me, it's fascinating that, you know, Trump is talking about uh, making America great again, bringing all the jobs back. Mm-hmm. He's not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Technology is actually going to do it anyway. So technology, take it away and technology, <laughs> bring it back kind of thing. When I teach AI to my students in my machine learning course, the first example we do is, is cancer. I have a database of cancer cells and I show them how in about five minutes of coding with open source tools which we download from Google, mm-hmm. we can actually detect whether a cell is malignant or benign with about 98-99% mm-hmm. accuracy, mm-hmm. which no doctor can do right now. Mm-hmm. Doctors are at about 90, 90% accuracy. This program, which literally everybody in class mm-hmm. is able to create and run in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, trains itself and is 98% accurate. Hmm. So that's your first doctor. You get the first opinion there. Then you give it to the real doctor. Mm-hmm. You get a second opinion. So with AI, you can actually speed up the whole thing and have accurate predictions of, or diagnostics as well. Hmm. I suspect what's going to happen is going to be a shift from blue collar to white collar. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we s- really start moving people out of the blue collar sector. Mm-hmm. But that's not something that's happened now because of AI. It happened because of automation 30 years ago on car assembly lines and coal mm-hmm. mining uh, situations. Anything that had heavy labor in, you know, input was, mm-hmm. was getting taken away by pure automation, nothing to do with AI mm-hmm. or machine learning. But now machine learning is allowing the white collar jobs to get affected, mm-hmm. which is what the interesting part of it is. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to hurt the poorer countries that had all this offshoring business more mm. than it'll actually hurt us over here. So. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah. I'd love to yeah, ask yeah. about yeah. the ocean to kind of wrap up. I read okay, that you, sure. love, yeah, you yeah. love the ocean. Why? What about the ocean? So the interesting thing about my life was that I grew up in Bombay in mm-hmm. India. Uh, I literally lived, I could see the ocean from my bedroom window mm-hmm. because Bombay is a very thin city. It's a huge city, but it's a thin, narrow thing like Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But it's on the ocean. It's not got Manhattan has two rivers on each side, yeah, yeah. but it doesn't have have the sea. You know, so the Arabian mm-hmm. Sea was basically outside my mm-hmm. my bedroom window, and I could just I would live at the top of a hill. I just went down the hill, like literally five minutes walk, and I was at the water. And mm-hmm. I grew up sitting there every evening with my friends. We used to just go down to the rocks and the beach and spend our evenings there after school and play around and then come back. Uh, and then the funny thing about my life is I've never lived in inland. Mm. I've lived in every city I've actually had a home in has been on the coast. Mm. So starting with Bombay, then I lived in Hong Kong. I lived in Singapore. I lived in Brunei. I lived in Kuala Lumpur. I lived in Sydney. I lived in Tokyo. Mm. I lived in uh, New York City, mm. Boston, wow. and now here. And I, I often ask people, it, it, I've not found another person other than people who've lived in Bombay their whole life or in New York their whole life who've moved and have never ever lived inland. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. I'm one of these like unique. And maybe it was because I just, I don't think I could ever live away from the ocean. It's just mm-hmm. part of something I, I can sit there for hours watching it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the most peaceful, calming thing, even though it's also the most dangerous looking thing out there, you know, as mm-hmm. well. So I'm very fond of marine life, you know, sharks and whales and spend a lot of otters, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, all these things as well. And uh, I'm not a great swimmer. I don't surf. I don't get on the water. But I do like uh, hiking and driving along the coastline. Mm. Well, I'd love to wrap up with a couple shorter questions. To start out, 
what is your favorite place that you've traveled? You mentioned all those different mm-hmm. places that you've lived. Maybe maybe what's 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 one place that you really enjoyed living and then also just a travel spot? Yeah, so I love living. I, you know, I, it's very hard to choose amongst mm-hmm. all the cities I've lived in. They've all been fantastic from Hong Kong to New York to Boston to, mm-hmm. you know, wherever. Uh, I still, Sydney was fantastic, mm-hmm. you know, so... I think of all of them, the two favorites, I think, would be New York City and and Hong Kong, Mm. just because they're very close to Bombay, where I grew up. You know, now Bombay is obviously where I was born and, you know, Mm -hmm. it'll always be a huge thing for me. But, but, uh, and I go back every year, so it's like I get my fix kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, but I think New York and Hong Kong have this vibrancy, Mm. but I wouldn't leave the Bay Area for anything. This place is, is perfect. I'm a huge Mm. outdoors guy. And so I... Mm-hmm. Have the mountains and the sea. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Bombay, where I drove one and a half hours inland. I came to the mountains, just like over here, mm-hmm. and the ocean was right there. So it was on the west coast of India. This is on the west coast of the US. Mm-hmm. It's almost at almost the same spot in the two countries. So it's mm-hmm. literally I just shifted from the same location uh-huh. <laughs> to the same location in another another place. You know, so so. So, yeah. Do you have any book recommendations for college students? Yeah. So, the book that I think I really enjoyed is a very, very old book. It's called The Soul of a New Machine. Mm-hmm. And it's a story of how some early computers were built. It's written by Tracy Kidder. I'm a very geeky guy. So, I love, you know, in some sense, I don't, I'm not a big f- reader of the historical stuff. I'm more read things that are science fiction and you know looking forward so that's a that's a great book yeah there's another one called shopcraft as soulcraft and it was it's a it's a really nice book this guy got a phd at chicago and then went to work for a pretty influential think tank Hmm. and then he had this epiphany that uh it just wasn't satisfying not working with his hands Hmm. and so he decided to open a motorcycle mechanic shop Hmm. Mm-hmm. And and he writes about how he found fulfillment doing that job where he got his hands on, on dirty. And to me, it resonated a lot because I left Citibank because I had gotten promoted and become senior enough where I wasn't doing the work myself. Mm-hmm. I was managing people all the time. And somehow it took away the satisfaction of actually building the things myself. Mm-hmm. You know, all I was doing was budgets and appraisals and mm-hmm. managing people and, you know, dealing with their problems. Mm-hmm. And, and I wasn't getting enough time to enjoy putting my hands on the work. And, mm-hmm. and so becoming an academic allowed me to spend the rest of my life literally working on stuff myself, mm-hmm. you know. And so that book to me resonated incredibly well because mm-hmm. it was sort of telling me the story of my life mm-hmm. uh, through somebody else's experience as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was another cool book. Yeah, I see that you have this yeah. motorcycle. I ride. Uh, I have a racing motorcycle. <laughs> so okay, <laughs> I've been riding for more than twenty years, and wow, and uh, so far no accidents, and uh, and it's just there is, it's a it's a liberating experience because mm-hmm. I have taken roads I would never have taken in my car. Mm-hmm. You go out for a ride, you don't have any real idea where you're going. Okay, I'm just going to go down somewhere near Stinson Beach and ride up the coast. Mm-hmm. And I get there and I see this road. Oh, I've never taken this road before. So you get off and you just go on this road. Mm-hmm. And, and with a car, you someone don't, your mind doesn't think that way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, I'm going from A to B. I'm going from A to B. I'm not like out there just... And the second thing with the bike is you you smell everything. Hmm. And so there's another sense that comes into play which enhances the experience. Hmm. 
which you don't get with with a car. Hmm. <laughs> so, and then of course there's the speed and the acceleration and you know all those other, <laughs> other things that you do with a bike that uh-huh. that. Uh, so I, I do have a little bit. I, I'm a rock climber too, so that's okay. Another, Wow. Uh, rock climbing is another cool thing because it's the only, only sport I have ever played. And I've mm. done quite a few other ones, but where my mind is completely focused. There mm. is something when you're on the wall, you can't be thinking of other stuff. You're on a mm-hmm. treadmill, your brain is working on some other mm-hmm. nonsense in your life, you know. Mm-hmm. But this thing completely requires 100% focus. So, mm. so it's very good because there's no other way to get that, you know. Mm. Yeah, you could, yeah, if you yeah, could yeah. send a message yeah. to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Yeah, I, I think in today's world, there is something nice about being curious. And that's what's made me who I am. I've just always thought curiosity was a good thing. And curiosity is a really good thing because if the more people find out about other people and what they do, mm-hmm. the more likely they're going to understand other people. Mm. And I think that's what we need right now a lot of. We need mm. everyone in this country to understand everybody else a bit mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. because putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is is a very good exercise, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I think people come together that way. Mm. You know, so yeah. awesome. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> You're for welcome, Gavin. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can subscribe to Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com for interview transcripts, and you can like the Facebook page. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the music. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day.